Please open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. And I was preparing this message before our Bristol outreach, the most successful autumn outreach to date. And as we've already said over the last few weeks, this has been our busiest year. And as I sat down last night thinking about today's service, I thought I would dig out my verses, which I wrote down in preparation for Bristol. And the truth be known, we ran out of time. We covered a lot of material during our time in Bristol, and I had probably 15 sermons lined up to preach on, and in reality I think I got to cover three or four, or perhaps five, if I include what we covered during our trip to Golders Green. Uh, Golders Green. So I want to call this message The Whore, and I want to look at a load of verses in Proverbs, and then of course give you the cross-reference. Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, let's begin, if we may, in verse 10, please. When wisdom entereth into thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, discretion shall preserve thee, understanding shall keep thee, to deliver thee from the way of the evil man, from the man that speaketh froward things, who leave the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice to do evil, and delight in the frowardness of the wicked whose ways are crooked, and they throw it in their paths, to deliver thee from the strange woman, even from the stranger which flattereth with her words, which forsaketh the guide of her youth, and forgetteth the covenants of her God. For her house inclineth unto death, and her paths unto the dead. None that go unto her return again, neither take they hold of the paths of life, that thou mightest walk in the way of good men, and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright shall dwell in the land, and the perfect shall remain in it. But the wicked shall be cut off from the earth, and the transgressors shall be rooted out of it. So number one, you've got at least two applications when you read the word of God. You've got the immediate context. And here you've got Solomon writing to his son. And the second application will be historical. Yes, it can also feed into eschatology. Doctrinally, this is somewhat tricky. This is Old Testament, uh, after all. And this is written by King of Israel to his son, a future king. And when I assess Solomon, when I profile Solomon, I think it's very fair to say that his ultimate downfall wasn't just his love of many women. We read that he loved over a thousand women, was married to around a thousand women, concubines. His ultimate downfall was that he became an idolater. It says that he was greatly beloved of his Lord, of his God, and yet many outlandish women caused him to depart from his God. And therefore, I think the Lord would have perhaps overlooked his polygamy. In fact, as I stand here this morning, I've almost finished my preparation uh, for our study, looking at the Ten Commandments. And I can see quite clearly that polygamy strictly speaking, wasn't actually condemned in the Old Testament. But what was condemned in the Old Testament and the New Testament was idolatry. And it also suggests to me this, that Solomon was very selective as to what type of woman he was looking for. All of his women were very religious, and yet most of the women in my family are not religious. Interesting. And his women that he went after were, unfortunately, worshipping false gods, and he couldn't withstand it. He fell. He uh, was corrupted by his love for his women. And instead of saying to his thousand wives, you need to 
become a believer in Jehovah, you need to forsake your false gods, which is what a real man of God would attempt to do. They corrupted him and they got him to depart from Jehovah and become an a, a idolater. And as a result, I believe he lost probably 20 or 30 years of his life. Was he saved? I really don't know. I like to think that he was saved, but I don't know. But here, 2.10, 2.22, you've got Solomon as a father offering good godly advice to his son with the hope that, number one, he won't head off with loose women, immoral women. The term whore in the scripture denotes a woman who sleeps with many men, is paid to do so. If you are a man and you sleep with many women, if you pay many women, you are called a whoremonger. It goes both ways. And I caught a clip on television a few days ago, in fact it was online, of a debate which took place a few years ago. And there was a liberal left-wing commentator, he writes for the Guardian newspaper, a very liberal paper in the UK. And many subjects were discussed around this table of perhaps five or six guests. And he said that men exploit women. And I thought, here we go again, give the men a good kicking. It's always the men's fault. And this took me back to when the uh, financial crisis affected us back in 08, 09. And people said that had the layman brothers been called the layman sisters, the crisis wouldn't have occurred. I thought, what a stupid statement to make. There was a story a couple of years ago of a well-known French woman, I shan't name her, and she was in uh, Sarkozy's cabinet. She was his uh, financial minister. She was the British equivalent to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And she was very powerful in her day. And around 18 months ago, the police raided her home. They were investigating fraud. And that still is ongoing. As of right now, she is the head of the IMF. I won't name her. You can do your own research. You want to know who she is. But this guy on this TV panel in the UK, a well-known British commentator, said that these poor women are exploited by men. And I thought, that's not true. And this took me back to an article that I read maybe two, three years ago of a woman in the adult industry. And they used that as cover for pornography. And she said this. She said that most uh, adult videos... They don't like to call it pornography because it has a very ugly connotation and you can understand why. She said most adult videos that people are buying now are made by women, are produced by women, are edited by women and are sold by women. And I thought, how interesting is this? If you were to listen to a typical unsaved person, they would say it's all man's fault. Man is wicked. And of course, he is going back to Genesis chapter six. But she made the point that that particular industry is now run by women. You've got women exploiting women. Does such a thing even exist? Probably not. If you think back to the old cowboy films from the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, you've got a couple of uh, cowboys rolling into a town. It could be in Colorado. It could be in Ohio, somewhere in the Midwest of America. Makes no difference. And they breeze into this particular town. There's always a bar. And they go into the bar, have a few drinks. And there's always a whorehouse next door. And the whole house next door is run by a madam, run by a woman. So I just want to say that because as a guy, I sometimes take offense to being condemned for being a man. In fact, I caught a clip on YouTube a few days ago of an American journalist who lives in London. And she was walking with these female protesters in central London, hardline feminists. I mean, real men haters. 
and they were shouting out all sorts of obscene uh, terms, which if we were to do as men, we'd be arrested probably. And she got near to this crowd of protesters, and I think her cameraman was a guy. They went bananas. Get that guy out of here. Women only. You guys are doing this. You guys are doing that. And I thought, you've got no idea, have you? And these people are causing quite a commotion. They're going around demonstrating, marching for more women's rights. In fact, I'll get back to this text quickly. There was a march in Dublin a few days ago for uh, more women's rights, uh, female rights. And a particular guy went along to it. I shan't name him. And he was walking with this crowd of women in Ireland, a Catholic country, hardline feminists. And he said, so do you believe in any cutoff date for an abortion? And they looked very uncomfortable. And he said, how about if you are due to give birth within an hour? Could you still have a termination? Would that be okay? They couldn't really answer it. Who wants to come out and say, that's fine. Just murder the baby an hour from birth. It's all good. In fact, there was a case in Britain two years ago. A woman had an abortion eight months pregnant. She went to jail. She was prosecuted for that. Interesting, isn't it? But here, Proverbs chapter 2, verses 10 to 22, has a double application. First and foremost, it's dealing with the desire of Solomon as a man of God, as he was when he wrote this, to warn his son away from loose women. But it also has a spiritual application, feeding into the book of Revelation. And I'll get to that shortly. Go to uh, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So Solomon started off very well. It says he was a great king. It says he had a lot of wisdom. It says that people traveled far and wide to seek him out, to get counsel from him, as they would do with Oliver Cromwell. There are reports of people as far away as Russia and Poland writing to Oliver Cromwell. Please, can you help us out with this? Please, can you help us out with that? And Cromwell would write back to such people. In reality, what could he do? Those countries were very far away, but they wanted his counsel. And in many ways, Solomon pictures Cromwell. Cromwell pictures Solomon. The two natures of the believer. Chapter 4, look at verse 14, if you will. Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not into the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. My son, mark out my words. My son, I'm a man of this world. My son, I don't want you to get tangled up with wicked men, wicked people. You're either for the Lord, or you are against the Lord. And these verses are, of course, timeless. Look at verse 16. For they sleep not, except they have done mischief, and their sleep is taken away, unless they cause some to fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness, and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is as the shining light, that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness, they know not at what they stumble. A very damning and timeless piece of scripture, and when I think of men going down a wrong path, when I think of men of God, like Solomon, down the line, in fact, even Cromwell, it was suggested that he was somewhat of a ladies' man. To go beyond that would be unfair. But when I think about men in general, or when I think about those that came from religious families, like Vincent van Gogh, or Vincent van Gogh, as 
his surname can be pronounced. He's a very interesting person for me to speak about this morning. Vincent came from a Calvinist family. His father was a pastor, and he had a brother and a sister. And Vincent was a very troubled man, and he watched his father up in the pulpit for many years, preaching, I would imagine, old fire uh, Calvinist messages, which were very uh, popular uh, back in the day. And Vincent grew up in that environment, and he thought to himself, he thought, I want to be a soul winner. And he tried his hand at evangelism, and he went to work with the miners, the coal miners, in, I think it was a part of Belgium. And he got there, and there was great poverty. Those men were working 15 hours a day, every day of the week. Great poverty, illiteracy was very high, and he was sent from his mission board. And there was a film made about Vincent Van Gogh, or Van Gogh, back in the 1950s, starring Kirk Douglas, and he was 100 last week, and I would suggest, if you want to know more about Vincent Van Gogh, or Van Gogh, you watch that movie. It's a very powerful movie, it's very accurate in the life and history of Vincent, quite possibly one of the world's greatest painters. Personally, I think his uh, art is somewhat bland, but I'm not an artist, it's not my forte. And there's a scene in this 1950s movie, and this is very true to Vincent's life, where members of the mission board arrive to visit Vincent, and they can't find him. And they go into his apartment, his abode, and it's like a pigsty. It's just an absolute mess. And he comes walking in, looking somewhat dishevelled, and they say, where have you been, Vincent? We've been writing to you for months. You haven't responded to our letters. Your apartment looks like a bomb has hit it. What is going on? And he said, well, I'm living with the people. And he said, uh, there's a lot of problems where I am currently living. And they said to him, but look at the state that you are living in. Where's all the money going? Because he was paid to be there, of course. He was a full-time missionary. And he said, well, the money that you are sending me, I'm giving to the people. You can't fault that. But the problem, of course, was that Vincent was, was unhinged. He had emotional problems. He should never have gone to the mission field, really. And to cut a long story short, he was fired as an evangelist he would backslide and there's a scene in the movie where he goes back to his family home in holland and um it's a sunday morning like today and his father has died and his mother goes to church with her daughter his sister and old vincent is in the field painting on a sunday which in those days was considered the sabbath and it's great shock that vincent a son of a preacher an evangelist, has now become a backslider and possibly an atheist. As the movie uh, unfolds, you see more backsliding. You see Vincent sleeping with prostitutes. There's a scene where it's insinuated that Vincent is bisexual and it has been insinuated by uh, writers of Vincent that the reason why he cut his ear was to show his lover that he couldn't live without him. Very complex man. Now, I'm not going to say that he wasn't saved. I don't know if he was saved or not, and neither do you. What I do know is that he came from a good background, like Solomon, got caught up, got in trouble with uh, the world, wasn't uh, particularly strong in his walk with the Lord, and therefore, as a result, he got into a lot of trouble. And when he hit the age of 37, he killed himself. Never sold a painting a day in his life. His brother Theo thought the world of him. Theo kept him afloat. Theo would sell paintings not his own, I think he only sold one painting in his whole life, and the money that Theo sent to Vincent kept him afloat. Very sad story, many sad stories, 
concerning uh, people from that particular era. And go to Proverbs chapter 5. But I think Vincent is perhaps the sort of person that Solomon has in mind. 5, uh, five look at verse 3 please. For the lips of a strange woman drop as an honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Hear me now therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house. Lest thou give thine honour unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with thy, with thy wealth, and thy labours be in the house of a stranger. And thou mourn at the lust, when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. And say, how have I hated instruction, and my heart despised reproof. And have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. So the theme, the warning, continues to unfold. In fact, go down to verse 14. I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly. So not only is Solomon speaking about loose women in general, and he would get caught up with certain people like that later on, as would other greats in the Old Testament, picturing the two natures of the believer in the believer. But you've also got a spiritual aspect to this. And when I think about this particular warning, I think about old Judah back in Genesis, who went in to his uh, daughter-in-law. He thought she was a harlot, and she wasn't. He got her pregnant, and this came out. And the first thing he said uh, was to burn her with fire. And the elders, when they realized that he was uh, the father of her child, backed off. Which also is of interest to me, because as I read through the Old Testament, I see many times the law being given by Jehovah, and yet very rarely enforced. That account concerning Judah and his daughter-in-law could have resulted in death. And yet I can show you other passages in the Old Testament where uh, such an act didn't result in death. And this is why you've got to be very careful when you read the Old Testament. A lot of people jump to conclusions and they label people uh, with particular descriptions. And yet it's not always the whole story. Look at 22, please. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself. And he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. He shall die without instruction. And in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. So it doesn't matter how long you've been saved for. It doesn't matter if you are a young man or an old man. Here this is aimed at the son of Solomon. And Solomon's father would also stray. If you spend any time reading through the Old Testament. And I hope you do on a regular basis. You will see very quickly that the best of the best were unable to succumb to sin and seduction. I will say this, that I don't know if I would go as far as to say that uh, a man can be seduced by a woman, or a woman can be seduced by a man. I would probably say this, that if such a thing uh, takes place, it takes place because such a person wants it to take place. Go to chapter 7. I'm not speaking about young people, impressionable people, I'm speaking about... I'm speaking about adults, growing up people. Chapter 7, uh, chapter 7, look at verse uh, 4, if you will, please. They that may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. For at the window of my house I look through my casements, 
and beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths, a young man, void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner, and he went away to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot, and subtle of heart, very reminiscent to the uh, Judah account, going back to Genesis. And if you spend any time looking through uh, history, church history or secular history, you realise this is a big industry. There was a case in the UK around 10 years ago concerning a man called Steve Wright. And Steve Wright was a serial killer. And he lived in a place called Suffolk in the south of England. And I remember following that story very carefully. And I think from memory he murdered six women. And it was like every single week another girl was going missing. And the media picked up on this. It was big. It was a big story in the UK. And a lot of police were seconded in to track this guy down. And people were saying, is there another Jack the Ripper on the loose? And after several weeks and months, it went quiet, as these cases always do. And then one morning, newsflash, we've got our man. And the cameras went to Suffolk Police Station. And the chief superintendent, whose name escapes me, came out. And he said, we've got him. We've got a man. And they said his name is Steve Wright. And I can still picture his face now in my mind. And they said this man has been arrested and charged with six murders. To cut a long story short, he was a uh, sex fanatic hooked on pornography. And this is the other problem which feeds into this type of behaviour. And after years and years of just indulging in his sin. And as somebody once said, the worst thing that God can do with a person is just leave them on their own. He deteriorated, he went down a more, de de uh, more degenerate route and murdered six women and he got life without parole. And I thought to myself this, I thought, why is it that in Britain, when these types of monsters are arrested, detained and put in jail, why is it that the families of these victims don't demand the death penalty? Please explain this to me. Why is it that mothers... That have lost their daughters. And many of these prostitutes were in their 20s and 30s. They were young mothers themselves. They were drug addicts themselves. Why is it that these mothers and fathers that have lost their daughters don't demand the death penalty? Why is it that they don't stand outside Parliament with placards up? I mean, talk about laying your life down for the cause of a loved one. Or the memory of a loved one. I'll tell you something. If you study the Russian Revolution. Or if you study... Germany, 1920s, 1930s. If you study a guy called uh, Leon Trotsky, he was an unsaved atheist, was on the streets 18 hours a day under threats of arrest from the Tsar, the Russian Tsar, who had a huge secret police. And they warned Trotsky to get off the streets or face arrest, torture and perhaps death. He wasn't faced. He wasn't phased, uh, phased at all. And he would spend 18 hours on the streets in Moscow, Leningrad, St. Petersburg, other cities around Moscow, around Russia, I should say. Yeah. And, you know, the rest, the Tsar fell and Lenin, another one on the streets for many hours every day, became the next generation of leaders. Wicked tyrants. They killed millions. But the point is this. Those guys took a stand. And I'll tell you something else. Those guys would have died for their cause. Look at Germany, 1920s. You've got Hitler, you've got Goering, you've got Hess, you've got other leaders in the 
Nazi Party, which incidentally was a left-wing party, Democratic Socialists. It wasn't a right-wing party. It was a left-wing party. And you got those guys, 1920s, early 1930s, marching in Munich. And the police said, back up, or we will open fire. And they all turned around and ran away. No, they didn't. They carried on marching. Going took a bullet, and it could have gone either way. Two bullets. Two bullets. Yeah. Okay, I, two bullets in the groin. And he carried on. They carried on. And, of course, you know the rest. They formed the next governments in Germany, and millions died. But the point is this. Wright was a sex fanatic. He was hooked on pornography. He went in with prostitutes. He paid them, and he murdered them. He got life without parole, and to this day, as far as I can recall, none of his victims, none of his parent, none of the, none of the parents of the victims that he murdered, have demanded the death penalty. I tell you one other thing, and I move on. There was a guy who was outside Parliament Square for ten years. I forget his name. I think it was Brian something. He was somewhat of an eccentric, and he had a huge problem with the Iraq War, and he had a tent opposite Parliament Square, and they tried to move him on. In fact, I think on one occasion, the police raided his tents, took him down to the local police station, and to his pleasant surprise, it turned out that what they did was illegal. And the court had to order his return to Parliament Square, and the police had to reassemble his tent. Talk about humiliating, but here's the point. How is it possible someone like him, an unsaved guy, day and night, and I mean day and night, all year round, sleeping in a tent, protesting against Iraq, for 10 years, and yet some of these parents that have lost their children, and I can think of other parents in the UK, which I shan't name, that have lost even younger children to paedophiles, and yet none of these parents are demanding the death penalty. Or how about this? How about going on a hunger strike? Imagine that. Imagine saying that I'm a parent of a young child, and I am, dis I am disgusted that my child has died. I'm going to go on a hunger strike, and I won't eat. Until the government reinstalled the death penalty. It doesn't happen. Because people are passive. People are unsaved. And I'm running out of time. Uh, chapter 7. Chapter 7. Uh, we looked at verses 4 down to 27. In the context uh, concerning a literal woman. But also concerning a spiritual woman. In fact go to Revelation. Otherwise I'm going to run out of time. Revelation chapter 2. Now. With what you've just heard is more than enough to put the fear of God into you, to turn your blood cold. But the ultimate purpose for me standing here this morning and reading those passages isn't just to uh, preach against paedophilia, of course not, or uh, going in with prostitutes, of course not, or practicing wickedness in general, absolutely not. You reap what you sow. But my ultimate purpose for doing this this morning is to look at the other aspects of this type of behaviour. You've got sexual immorality, of course, but you've got spiritual immorality as well. As well. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Uh, look, if you will, please, at verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. And the last be more than a first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, 
to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the church shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Jezebel. Jezebel. It could be a pseudonym, perhaps. Or it could be in reference to a literal first century woman. A prophetess. Leading into the ultimate seducer in the New Testament. Feeding into the end of the church age. And I'll get there in a minute. You've got Jezebel back in the Old Testament. A wicked woman who enticed Israel to sin physically and spiritually. Going back to the problem that Solomon came up against. And I think Solomon thought to himself this. I'm a pretty tough guy. I've got a lot of wisdom. Sheba would travel to visit me. And she was blown away at my wisdom. She was blown away at the way my servants were treated. How happy they were in my presence. And these women. It starts with maybe a few dozen. Like his father would enjoy. Like all of the Old Testament greats would enjoy. But it starts to get out of control. A few dozen becomes a few hundred. And eventually he is tied up. And connected to a thousand women. And they have strong personalities. They are very religious. In fact as far as I can recall. There are no atheists in the Bible. And these women. Very religious like I say. Completely took Solomon over. And as I say as a result of, be, of becoming an a, a, a idolater. He loses probably 30 years of his life. But I look at verse 20, 21, 22 from Revelation chapter 2. And I read about Jezebel, who perhaps was a first century woman. Or if she wasn't, she is a, or this term is a pseudonym perhaps. For someone picturing such a character from the Old Testament who is seducing God's people. And I remember getting an email some years ago from particular woman and we spoke to her on the phone in fact patrick spoke to her on the phone and she said this she said uh, we've just come back from south america doing missionary work she was from south america her husband was a brit and she said we just returned to the uk quite recently and to my shock my husband has moved out he is living with a woman and he has converted to catholicism and if that wasn't bad enough, he has, disowned, he has disowned me and our three sons. And I thought, so he's left you, he's moved in with another woman, he's become a Catholic, and before all of that, he was hooked on pornography. And she was trying to get legal advice as to her situation. She was on the cusp of being evicted from her home. And I thought, this guy has been completely seduced by Jezebel. From Revelation chapter 2. Go to chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. There's always more than one application to the word of God. If it wasn't bad enough. Or you know, it's bad enough to go off with a woman. It's bad enough to pay a woman. In fact I caught a documentary a while ago. Of an Eastern European man living in London. And I think he worked at a bar or a nightclub. With this woman. And he's being interviewed about his life. And without going into too much detail. He was saying that he is what they call a kept man, like living, living on a retainer. And he said that he was paid by a much older woman to be his living, living lover. And he looked very uncomfortable uh, speaking about this. You can understand why. Go to Revelation chapter 14. I thought, you see, it goes both ways. It's not just men 
paying women like Steve Wright. It's this woman who owned a nightclub in South London paying this guy from Romania, I think it was, or Bulgaria, to be her living lover and whatever else he would do with her, which I don't want to go into now. And it goes both ways. Going back to when the Word of God says how we've all fallen short, or we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's absolutely true. You can bash men as much as you want if you are a feminist, but the sisterhood isn't much better. 14.8 And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of a fornication. Not just physical fornication, but spiritual fornication. Like this guy who left his wife and three sons, moved in with a woman, a Catholic, converted to Catholicism, disowned his wife and sons. He got intoxicated by the pull of Catholicism, the priests dressing up, incense, statues everywhere, the term Holy Mother Church, etc., etc. And here Babylon, almost definitely in reference to Rome, is now guilty and she's drinking of the wine of the wrath of a fornication it is fair to say back in the old testament many times you have literal sin tied in with sexual uh, sexual sin tied in with spiritual sin but i think it's fair to say when i read all these verses together and go to chapter 17 that you've got primarily spiritual fornication spiritual adultery like solomon who was unable to to lead one of his women to the lord he was a failure 17 1 and there came one of the seven angels which are the seven vials, and talk with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore, that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of a fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet kind of beast, full of names of blasphemy, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet colour, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of a fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, the Roman Catholic Church, of course. And therefore, you read these verses, and you can't help but ask yourself this, number one, why aren't more Protestants speaking out against Rome? Number two, how is it possible that Rome is continuing to grow with all their paedophile stuff being exposed and priests being prosecuted and some even taking their own lives? Why is it continuing to grow? Because number one, it's the devil's church. But number two, there aren't enough people speaking out against it. So I will say this and bring this message to an end. The whore, whoremonger, Old Testament is partly in reference to physical sins and the consequences are obvious but ultimately and more importantly can I suggest it's in reference to spiritual whoredom spiritual prostitution political spiritual whoredom if you think of any well-known Catholic politician or showbiz person or those in the media you never once hear them speak to their audiences and tell the truth about what their church really expects from them. There was a Pope some years ago. It may have been Leo X. Who said that if you were a lay Catholic. And you questioned the papacy. It was insanity. And he was saying quite simply this. That you have no right to question what your church preaches. And if you do you are insane. 
you have a mental problem. Could you imagine Jack Kennedy coming out back in the 1960s and telling the American public that his church believed in such a statement? Of course you can't. Or how about Tony Blair, who converted to Catholicism in 2007? Could you imagine him sitting down with Larry King or Piers Morgan or Jeremy, Paxson, uh, Jeremy Paxman, very well-known British uh, reporters, if you don't know, and telling them that his church believed in such? Of course you can't. He will lie to you. The church that he is a part of will lie to you. I've yet to see any Catholic journalist anywhere at any time warn or speak the truth about what their church really believes in. Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots. There's our word again, mother of harlots. Verse 1, the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. And this whore is arrayed in purple and scarlet colour, verse 4, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. She's very wealthy. She has her own bank. She controls the governments of the world. One of the first places that uh, Trump went to visit was the Vatican back in May of this year. And he took his daughter with him and his son-in-law. And it's not just him. The Queen of England has been to Rome many times and she dresses in black as a sign of sorrow, as a sign of submission. And the Pope comes out wearing white. A wicked counterfeits, of course, of our Saviour. He has many titles, like Vicar of Christ, which he stole from the Holy Spirit. Holy Father, which he stole from God the Father. And the Apostle, which he stole from Jesus Christ. So you've got a lot of material here from Proverbs and Revelation. And I hope if you are in this particular system, or if you are thinking about converting to Rome in 2018, think again. Because once you convert to Rome, if you are evangelical, if you are fundamental, if you claim to know Jesus Christ, if you claim to be born again, and you go over to Rome, then I think you are perpetually in seduction now. You've been bewitched, bewildered, and of course the problem with that is you can't get out of it. And I'll say one other thing, they curse. They curse faith alone, they curse scripture alone, and they curse eternal security. And therefore, if you get caught up in such a system, you have fallen from grace, which is the worst case scenario for anybody who is truly saved. I pray that you don't allow yourself to become seduced by the spiritual whore and become guilty of idolatry. I'll just say one other quick thing as a quick footnote. The Jesuits went to Japan in the 16th and 17th century, and when they first arrived, they converted over 300,000 Japanese to Catholicism. And yet what isn't widely reported, even to this day, amongst or within Catholic circles, is how many of those Jesuit priests actually abandoned their own faith and religion and were perhaps seduced or went off with uh, Japanese women, turned their back on Catholicism and became parts of the Japanese culture. So this seduction goes Two ways, three ways, four ways. It starts with Solomon in the Old Testament. It uh, feeds into the New Testament with a church uh, seduction, church system trying to entice people into their system. And if you go to the 16th and 17th century, it then goes back. Or as they say, you reap what you sow, what goes around comes around. You've got these invaders, these Jesuits, invaders, arriving on the coasts of, uh, coasts of Japan, starting off with success and then being arrested by the warlords in japan forced to renounce catholicism and many would do and they've been here brushed out of jesuit history 
And like I say, what they were guilty of, enticing people, uh, seducing people, trying to overthrow people's belief in the King James Bible and the Word of God came back to bite them, as they say. So they got their own comeuppance. But whether it was Vincent, whether it was uh, Judah in Genesis or the Jesuits in Japan, it makes no difference. Men are weak, women are weak, only one man walked the face of this earth who never sinned a day in his life. And of course, that was uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So just a quick footnote to this pretty uh, depressing subject, I know, but I wanted to just add this on as a quick footnote, because I think sometimes people have this very high view of the Jesuits being like Superman being impenetrable. And of course, they're not. They're just men, just flesh and blood. Only one man was perfect. And of course, that is our great saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.